In the Fuzzy Memories podcast, we celebrate the good, the rad, and the fugly of the 80s and 90s. We're three latchkey kids who made it out alive. And in each episode, we break down all the culture that popped one year at a time. Whether it's the birth of legends. I'm Lyme disease free today and I have Whitney Houston and MTV to thank. (laughs) Or audacious moves. Imagine also the the poor Golden Gate Bridge. You turn 75 and people have a party on you. I don't want that. Or even confusing PSAs. In the stop, drop, and roll. I mean, we would, I assume as an adult, I would catch on fire weekly. All the time! (laughs) We've got a take that will make you laugh. We've also got thoughts on all sorts of random phenomena and the most unmitigated of golf. Why sharks can't be trusted, people can't be trusted, and rivers can't be trusted. (laughs) It's collusion. It's of the highest degree! Uh Uh-huh. You were counseling me to start my remarks with, first of all, bitch. <laughs> that one, everyone in that room would have snapped to attention. It's going to be basically coffee lids, shark revenge, and then maybe like Matt gets. <laughs> we need to do something about him. Join us every other Wednesday to celebrate the hits, the misses, and the misfits of the weirdest decades. If I could tell my 14-year-old self from 1990 that I would be eating in a cheesecake factory in, in Beverly, Beverly Hills, I'd be like, we did it. We, we did it, Joe. We did it. <laughs> Listen and subscribe to Fuzzy Memories on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and your favorite podcast platform. Welcome to Broads and Books. I'm Erin. And I'm Amy. And this is a special Broads and Books bonus episode. Today on the Broads Talk Books with, we've got Emily Nagoski. She is one of my double picks. She wrote Come As You Are, which I recommended in episode number 35, and Burnout, which I recommended in episode number 59. Emily is a legit expert in sexual and mental health and works extensively in sex education and violence prevention. And get this, in her official bio, it says, Emily's mission in life is to teach women to live with confidence and joy inside their bodies. I mean, come on. It's amazing. It's amazing. You you and I have talked a lot about how much her books have changed our thinking Mm -hmm. and how much we want everyone in the world to read them because it's amazing stuff. Yes. We routinely use terms we learned from the books yes, in our daily life. It's fantastic. And it's interesting because most of the authors we've talked to have had a liberal arts background. It's not often we talk to a scientist, a research, a teacher. So we were super curious about Emily's reading life. And we got Emily on Zoom and talked about her library love, her favorite fan interactions, why TED Talks were designed by teenage boys, and her utterly wonderful, surprising pop culture obsession. Which, spoiler alert, you mentioned might be your favorite of all time. It's the best answer. It's terrific. (laughs) It is. I thought, yeah, we've had some good ones lately, but this one, I liked it a lot. Yeah. Mm -hmm. You will find all the books she talks about in the show notes. And now, here's our interview with Emily Nagoski. Do you have a favorite book as a kid or a teen that you remember particularly? Okay, I'm going to be honest with you. Yeah. 
unfortunately, the defining book of my like peri adolescence was Gone with the Wind. Whoa! Yeah. Wow. Look, I was born and raised in Delaware. Okay. Okay. My father was born and raised in Tennessee and Texas. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was a, you know, went to a middle class school with a whole lot of white people. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I look, I when I reread it in college, I was like, whoa! <laughs> like I do understand how it's it's so racist yeah it is so racist oh my god (laughs) but but here's the thing when i was 11 years old i read scarlet as an intense spirited spunky bossy pushy stubborn woman Mm who fucking got shit done, who saved everyone's ass, even though nobody fucking liked her. <laughs> and I was like, this is my girl. Yeah. It, yeah. So I, I get how problematic it is, but let's, it, it is simply the case that when I was 11 years old, what I needed was a bitch boss, mm-hmm. and Scarlett gave me that. It just unfortunately came with a lot of racism. So much. <laughs> But we get that, like, we've talked about some of the books, A, that were made to read in school, and B, that somehow we glom onto, and they're so problematic in so many ways. So we feel you. Yeah. And it's also, the other part about it that I appreciated was uh, uh, the sort of, like, counter character, the irritant character of Melanie, who is everything that I also was taught women and girls are supposed to be, mild, meek, submissive, like sweet in in burnout we call this human giver syndrome that women have a moral obligation to be pretty happy calm generous and attentive to the needs of others and scarlet knew that that's what she was supposed to be and she knew she would never be that and it always like made her miserable on some level so that was another dimension like the 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 there's a, a feminism in the tension that Margaret Mitchell, the very gigantic racist, let's be clear, <laughs> that she wrote into that dynamic. I mean, she's even more racist than people give her credit for. Mm-hmm. She, I worked at Smith College for eight years, and she uh, went to Smith for, I think, two years and left because there were too many black women. Ah. No, it's terrible. She's super bad. Oh, it's so bad. And here I was in my mind. I was trying to think redeeming wise, like, oh, maybe times. No. Okay. No. Yeah. Mm. No, she gave money to um, a black college and university medical school. And you think, oh, well, but it's because she's like, I know black people need doctors, so they should have black doctors. Jesus Christ. (laughs) Like, I want to make sure everybody knows that I am fully aware of how unredeemed (laughs) Margaret Mitchell and Gone with the Wind are. I am not apologizing for it mm. at all. Mm-hmm. It's bullshit. <laughs> but I get and that I'm feeling a product of, like, of white feminism that sort of like yeah. hit the yeah. 90s and was like, whoa, fuck. I like that answer a lot. That's, okay. a very, that's like one of my favorite answers ever. <laughs> Coming in hot with some Margaret yes. Mitchell. Yeah. So you obviously went into science and research primarily. 
um, but then decided to share your knowledge by writing books. Thank you. Mm -hmm. Thank uh, you. What books or writers made you want to be a writer? That's a hard question to answer because I have always read obsessively. Mm -hmm. Like I know people use the term voracious reader, but like every summer through my entire childhood, I didn't even realize until high school that a lot of people spend their summers like going to the pool and hanging out with other kids. Because when school ended, I would go to the library and get a stack of books three feet high piled up on the radiator in the living room and just work my way through the stack. Mm -hmm. All summer, the collected works of Vladimir Nabokov, the collected works of Charles Dickens, the collected <laughs> works, like all of Sherlock Holmes one summer, just like come from a pretty dysfunctional family of origin, probably not real surprising. Um, and I get to know how people are with each other through reading about it. I learn how to be in relationships from the science of relationships. John Gottman reparented me through his research. The Seven Principles of Making Marriage work taught me how to be in a relationship. Sue Johnson's work on attachments, reading the original John Bowlby, re-taught me how people love each other as mammals. The weird thing is... Uh, in 2018, I was talking to my therapist about a chapter, the, the connection chapter of burnout. Mm -hmm. And uh, she said, well, uh, how about you read this book? It's a collection of essays written in the 1980s by some therapists. And I read it and there was an essay in there by her that was about her experience of uh, terminating therapy with a client. And I got to know her as a wow. person by reading her writing in a way like I never could have. She'd been my therapist for eight years at that point. And like, I would never have gotten that sort of deep connection if I hadn't read what she had written. There's something so important about like, if these are the words that you chose to be permanently marked in ink on paper. Yeah. And so they must have meant something extra to you because you wanted it documented. So you learn who people are from their writing in a way that you don't from just having a conversation with them. Mm -hmm. And I know there's a lot of other stuff you get from a conversation, like with the body language and the like rhythmic blah, blah, blah. My sister's a musician. I know that like bodies <laughs> matter in communication, <laughs> but I learn from written words in a major way. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I think so that's so that's true. how I communicate back to people is through yeah. very large volumes of written word. <laughs> Well, I was going to say that it's, I think, especially for two like nonfiction works, you can tell that you have a strong reading background because it doesn't read like that. It flows and it felt so like I went through them so quickly and that's not normally how I read nonfiction. I feel like I take it apart more and it just was this like journey that all hooked together so perfectly. You can kind of see that there was clearly a strong reading background to be able to do all that. Oh, good. I think it... I, I might be able to credit the fact that I read very much to that, but also I read a whole lot of books about how to write a book because I learned how to do things by reading books about That's, it. Yeah. Um, mm -hmm. So. So what if you, you know, growing up, you were a huge reader. I assume you're still a huge reader now in the time yeah. that you can find. Um, what's your reading life like? Do you primarily read fiction? Do you read nonfiction? What do you, what do you like to do? Lots of both. Um, it's 2020 right now. It's so fucking 2020. I, from March 13th until the election, I could not read a paper book, Oof. which that's bananas for yeah. me. But like I could, I tried over and over and I could read like a page at a time and just my brain wouldn't focus. So I have spent the year listening to audiobooks. 
However, in the last two weeks, I have been able to read paper books again. <laughs> but it just like Yay! it just came right back. It's been it's been very oh, thrilling. Oh, Biden and Kamala gave that back to you. That's so. Can nice. I say like this is a place? This is a venue where you'll really appreciate this. My one true claim to fame, having been born and raised in Delaware, my tenth grade English teacher was Jill Biden. <gasps> I know. Oh right? my God. Yeah, that's a claim to fame for sure. She yeah, taught is. me Catcher in the Rye. Oh, my God. And she's going to be in charge of stuff. Sort of. <laughs> I know. <laughs> I mean, she's going to be first lady. It's, it's, it was thrilling enough when she was second lady. Like, that was a delight. Yeah. 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 What do you think, what was it about audiobooks, do you think, that allowed you to get into them a little easier? Oh, it's because I didn't have to, like, focus my attention so deliberately. If my mind wandered, yeah. there was still somebody reading directly to me. And I've always loved to be read to mm -hmm. under any circumstances. Um, so I could do something else. So there'd be sort of this counter irritant of, like, doing a puzzle or the dishes or the laundry or sweeping or whatever kind of cleaning up after the dogs stuff mm -hmm. while the story was happening. And I, like, I listened to a lot of really intense, dark stuff. I read, listened to a lot of books about fascism. Oh, God. Yeah. That's I not learned. what you do in 2020. What are you doing? Yeah. I mean, it kind <laughs> of was. So I, I'm what you call a pessimist. Yeah. Okay. Um, and I was, mm -hmm. I was not sure that uh, anything was going to transition to a good direction. Mm -mm. Uh, and I wanted to get a deeper understanding of what my place was in a world of authoritarianism. Yeah. Like I, I truly wanted to know what to do with myself. Uh, and it was great, actually. I'm so glad I did that work because it turns out sex positivity and women's bodily autonomy are inherently anti-fascist. To be inclusive of the LGBTQIA plus community is inherently anti-fascist. To do work that is explicitly anti-racist is inherently anti-fascist. Wow. So I found a way to feel more deeply connected to my work even in the context of like a very dark horror show that I was anticipating. Like we already got to a place. How dark should I, I'm going to not go all the way to the darkness. Like <laughs> it got real bad. Like for realsy, yeah. the world is going in the wrong direction. And I, it, it's not like we're suddenly just like cruising, mm -mm. like very bad things. Um, and I didn't flinch away from that. And it sounded like you reframed some of your passions and some of your work as yeah. resistance, which is so crucial. Yeah. Mm -hmm. wow. Yeah. And smart, because I sort of just went into a fetal position. For a few <laughs> <laughs> oh, I mean, I had a lot, of, again, gave up. <laughs> I didn't read a book. Like, I didn't yeah. physically open yeah. a book. Mm -hmm. I kept buying books, of course. And <laughs> well, that's just... Well, that's good yeah. to know. We did the same. Yeah. Uh -huh. yeah. So is there a book that surprised you recently? I, really, the thing that surprised me was, if I were going to pin it down to one book, there are so many of the, of the uh, fascism books. Uh, the main, the thing, How Fascism Works by Jason Stanley. Mm. Uh, it was so good. And it's the one that was like, hey, look, feminism is anti-fascist. And uh, LGBT rights is anti-fascist. And after I listened to that book, I listened to a book that was originally supposed to be published in 1939. But it was written about the year like 
four, I do believe. It's called Defying Hitler by Sebastian Hafner. Um, and he was uh, an anti-Nazi German law student. And he wrote about the experience of being a law student during the rise of Hitler in Germany Whoa. at the time. Oh so he's God. writing in 1939 from exile in the UK about like you need to, in order to understand what's going on in Germany, let me tell you what my experience was. So it's not reflective of post-war anything. Um, it's not, uh, it's written before the final solution was drafted even. Mm. Um, and there was this really striking scene when he's in Berlin and he goes to a nightclub that's, you know, like cabaret, hosted by gender bending, cross-dressing, queer folks, and mm -hmm. they are the only people that he has seen in Berlin who are actively speaking against Hitler. Wow. Like, they're the voice that oh in public is making fucking jokes about it. <laughs> that's fascinating. We never hear that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Yeah. So there's two. So that was one of the amazing things about that book was that like the uh, voice of resistance, this like the playful, laughing, humiliating voice that is the one that's so essential, not just the anger and the rage, but the laughter and the play as resistance was coming even then from the LGBT community. And so he's not a Jew, the author of the book. But in 1934, he already knew what was happening. Jesus. Like, he was dating a Jewish woman. And in 1934, when she didn't show up on time, he was like, did they kill her? Oh, my God. So, like, nobody can say they didn't know. Yeah. Because he knew yeah. then. So, wow. so, that was... I recommend that book for people who are interested in understanding yeah. what it's like oh, to live Lord. in a rising fascist state. Yeah. Again, how dark are we going to go? Sorry about that. We hey. routinely bridge the line between super dark and way too weird and light. So I listen to a lot of romance novels, too. So. <laughs> <laughs> like that balance. That's perfect. Yeah. Well, thinking, you know, you, you read, obviously, fiction and nonfiction, like you said, and you've been reading some darker stuff, but also maybe some lighter. How do you find your book recommendations? The state of Massachusetts allows any resident to uh, download audio and ebooks from the Boston Public Library app. Wow. For free. Just, and if you live in Massachusetts, you can have those. Um, and so uh, sometimes I go by just what it puts in front of me. Mm-hmm. Uh, I will often, especially for nonfiction, I'll go looking for a particular topic. So I, in addition to reading a whole lot of fascism books, I've read a whole lot of anti-racism books. And once you get one, it sort of like opens up the chain oh, yeah. of like, here's all the rest of them. And you're mm -hmm. like, okay, well, so that's this week. Yep. Uh, and I follow some of my favorite authors on like Instagram mostly, and they'll post like, here's the book I'm reading that's really good and you should read that book. And if I like your books and you say I should read it, then I will also read that book. For sure. Yeah. Excellent. Well, it sounds like we're, we're the same way, Erin. We get a lot mm -hmm. of our recommendations the same way. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Absolutely. And um, uh, Smart Bitches Trashy Books, the, they Ooh. have a website and a podcast there of mm -hmm. uh, romance specializing. And uh, they both, they, they get the joke about romance and uh -huh. also we're like deeply passionately committed to romance wonderful so they're like the perfect source of recommendations mm. 
Well, we, as we mentioned, we recommended both Come As You Are and Burnout in different episodes, and we both read both of them and loved both of them. Um, and like we mentioned, they're so engaging, it's so well done. So are there any particular books that inspired you um, in particular when you were writing that or as you were writing? Oh, a lot. I mean, I, what the amount of reading I do to write just stacks and piles in preparation for this, I knew I would have to be in my office, but I took pictures of my bookshelves at home. Oh, so that I'd be because I was like, "How am I going to remember all the books?" So to begin <laughs> with, um, the origin of sex, uh, whose author's name I cannot remember, and it's not on the picture that I took. Of course, the origins <laughs> of sex was a really important book. It's about the first sexual revolution. Is the subtitle? Uh, it's about sort of like early modern to mid to 1800, basically 1650 to 1800 British sexual norms and the transition that happened um, across then, particularly around the narrative of women's sexuality. In 1650, women were the uh, hornier sex. Their sexuality had to be put on a leash and controlled because they were so like ravenously sexual. And by 1800, that had flipped and we were like moving into the territory of like, you know, normal, healthy woman doesn't experience any sexual feelings at all. And neither of those extremes is true, obviously, but the like what happened culturally. So that's what that book was about. And it was really important to the research process that I went through. Oh, a really wonderful book was called Explain Pain Supercharged. This is a very nerdy book. It's two authors, Lorimer <laughs> Mosley and David Butler. They're both physiotherapists in Australia. Uh, and it's like a very deep dive into how pain works in our brains and our central nervous systems um, and what an effective treatment is for pain. Wow. And it's, it's not what we usually think it is. Self-Regulation of Behavior uh, by Charles Carver. So chapter two in Burnout is about this thing that we call the little monitor. But the technical term for it is the discrepancy reducing feedback loop and criterion velocity. (laughs) Right. I like like your term a little better. So self-regulation of behavior is like the grounding text of that research. There's newer stuff that has been published in academic journals since then. uh, But that's a really important one. Oh, and then there's the whole list of books about writing. Oh, yeah. Uh, one of my favorite ones is actually written for therapists on how to use metaphor called Metaphor in Practice. Oh, wow. Yeah. And it's like here as a therapist, you can use metaphor to engage with your client about their issues because it helps you get uh, observational distance. Um, chapter eight of Burnout is about the mad woman, which yeah. is itself a metaphor. Um, and the phrase we use to describe the reason why the mad woman is important is because it gives you observational distance. Self-compassion is so much harder for us than just compassion for someone else. So if you can uh, personify that like mean lady who lives in your head, the mean voice that beats a shit out of you whenever anything doesn't go perfect, um, if you can personify it as something that's just slightly separate from you, it allows you to get that observational distance. And that's what metaphor is for, is to let you get like just like one step back from an issue so that you can think more clearly about it. I think that's what storytelling does too. When we see so much. A, a novel where we can find ourselves in the story, that's us getting like a little bit of observational distance on a situation that we're experiencing 
and we can see how someone else goes through it. And uh, we, in, in chapter six of burnout, <laughs> turns out I'm gonna, just going to talk about the book the whole time. Um, Amelia <laughs> we don't and I care. Read about fine. the yeah. experience yeah. of connected knowing. Mm-hmm. Where separate knowing is the like what you get trained in school to do mostly. It's logic and reasoning and the scientific method, and it's very powerful and important, and you should definitely do some. And connected knowing is a different way of knowing that involves sort of like morphing yourself into someone else's experience or identity and feeling how that suits you and how it doesn't suit you. And you can learn about not just the other person by doing that, you also learn about yourself. So one of the ways that women in particular come to know themselves is through learning about other people. So when we Mm -hmm. read, we're projecting ourselves into this other situation and we learn more about ourselves that way. And then we talk about that story with other people who've also read it and they're comparing their experience of that world with our experience of that world. And we're experiencing our experience of that world with their experience of that world. So we're learning more about that world. We're learning more about that person and we're learning more about ourselves when we don't just read a book, but share with other people the reading that we're doing. Wow. That frames reading in a holy... I mean, we've talked a lot about the empathy that you learn from reading and from being a voracious reader. And you kind of talked about that a little bit, but yeah, that frames it in a fully other way too. That's amazing. Mm -hmm. Also, just in case you, there's this cat that is so attracted to you right now and will not leave you alone because he wants to apparently be close to you. So in case you've seen just an orange dart moving back and forth, that's what's happening. Um, I imagine that, you know, as you, after you published Come As You Are and Burnout and in better times, you were able to go do readings and and visit with fans. Did you have a particularly memorable fan interaction? I could see that happening very easily with the topics that you write about. Yeah, but a lot. And they're all, because because of the kind of nonfiction that I write, uh, I get really personal stories. Obviously, I'm not going to share other people's personal yeah, stories. Yeah, um, But a come-as-you-are example, I was at a professional conference, actually, um, and a guy came up to me. He's a sex therapist because it was a sex therapist conference, and he told me that he gave a copy of Come-as-you-are to his mom. Whoa. And she read it, and the two of them talked about it together, and it changed their relationship. Because we're talking about this sex book, this sex therapist guy and his 70-something mom. That's fantastic. Right? Yeah. That is. And also an uh, indicator of a good relationship between a son and his mom to be able to right? talk about that stuff. Yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. that's what yeah. I was just thinking. <laughs> they were already in pretty good shape. Yeah. <laughs> before. So. The fact that they could have that conversation. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But I also like whenever I hear parents being like, I just like have a copy in the house and it disappears every now and then. Great. Wow. Love that. That's Teenagers good. just yeah. like taking the book. Perfect. Oh my God. Can you imagine having something like that as a teenager? That would have changed a lot of things. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. That just kind of blew my mind thinking about that. <laughs> <laughs> I had that book as a teenager. <laughs> Was there another writer or notable person that you wanted to meet and got to through this process? When I went to TED, I met Baratunde Thurston, which was, he was giving the, like, closing speech. But TED is very weird. Like, it's, it's such a strange experience. It's like an event organized by rich white teenage boys. 
which means that there's coffee on literally every corner, like craft espresso, uh, and just these racks of snacks everywhere you go. And uh, so I went around like the, like, I was a broke grad student for a long time. If there's a free food, I am taking the free food. And they give you a tote bag because it's like, you know, a white person event. So you get a tote bag. Yeah. Um, and uh, <laughs> I, live, I was like going around, like take, filling my tote bag with snacks to I mean, take home to my husband. If they didn't want you to do that, they wouldn't have given you the tote bag. You know what? They gave us a fucking suitcase. There they gave go. us a rolly bag suitcase. And I was like, oh. I will just fill this rolly bag suitcase. <laughs> With snacks. Yeah, that's the team boy's fault. And, uh, yeah. and the reason I'm telling you this story is because <laughs> Paratunde Thurston was doing a similar thing oh, of like going wonderful. around, like looking at the snacks and like choosing things to take. Wow. So your takeaway from the TED event was snacks. So many, <laughs> yeah. so many different kinds of snacks. <laughs> it took my husband most of a year to eat all the snacks I brought back. That's good. <laughs> You're feeding your family through your work. <laughs> that's right. Yeah. um has your you know after you've published uh these couple books has your love or joy of reading putting 2020 aside has your love or joy of reading changed at all since becoming a published writer yes yeah uh it was only by becoming a writer that i really understood what it was i loved about reading Hmm. and it changed my relationship with authors before I was very much like about reading the book. And I think a lot more now about the human being who produced the book mm-hmm. rather than just like critiquing the story. I contextualize the story that I read with the person who produced that story. And it deepens my understanding of what I just consumed. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And that only happened because I am a person who made a book. I know like you have to choose every single one of those words mm-hmm. and in come as you are, there is 90,000 of them. <laughs> That's a lot of words. words. Yeah. yeah. As, as Douglas Adams puts it, uh, writing is the process of putting a hundred thousand words in a cunning order. Well, is there a book that you think everyone should read? Because, because this is the kind of like woo woo hippy dippy Rudy Duty, fresh and fruity, liberal I am. I just feel like what's most important is that everybody read. Oh my God. I didn't realize the sentence was done at first. And then I was like, oh yeah, that's important. That everyone read. Mm -hmm. I love that that's where you went and that that's the sign of liberal that you are. (laughs) (laughs) I don't want to be in control or dictate what anybody reads. As long as we're all reading. See, you gave up the power that you had right then. You could have said that, you know, you could have demanded. But anytime you say, like, people should do this, there's always those reactant people who are like, I am never going to do that just because you said so. That's true. (laughs) That is very true. Yeah, I'm the cool aunt, not the parent, so. (laughs) So, you know, we, we obviously talk about books a lot, but one of the things we also talk about each episode is pop culture and what we're obsessed with that week on a theme. We talk about podcasts, we talk about movies, TV, we talk about Instagram accounts. Are there things that you're obsessed with right now, pop culture-wise? I knew this question was coming because I listened (laughs) to episodes and uh, I was on the elevator 
going up to my office and I was like, am I going to, am I going to actually come out and tell them what my true pop culture guilty pleasure is? Yeah, you are. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Here's the thing. My husband and I were married for a long time before we got to have any kind of honeymoon. We mm-hmm. tried a couple of different kinds of vacations and we have really different vacation styles. But in 2016, right when I left my job, literally the day after I left my job, we went to Disney World. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. it turns out you can have two very different vacations simultaneously at Disney World. Ooh. And because it was 2016, we were about to need a bubble of escapism mm-hmm. that could not be penetrated even by 2017. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And uh, so after that first trip, we became annual pass holders. And so our obsession now is, uh, is Disney, like I go to Disney World. Wow. I did go to Disney World a lot. I have not been, of course, since February. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and I realize how hella problematic Disney is in every conceivable way. Like I'm super aware. (laughs) I know. Yeah. Don't talk yourself out of it. But they are so good at creating an experience of just happiness and escapism. Have you been to Batu, the star Wars land? (laughs) I haven't been to Disney world since I was 10 years old. So no, no, I haven't. It's Mm -hmm. not for everybody. Okay. Like I get that. But the thing is, in Batu, the Star Wars land, they have these games you can play on your phone, where uh, and like it's a it's a multiplayer game. These uh, you like go around and unlock little like things that are on the wall, and you can change the color from like uh, red, which is the stormtrooper color, to blue, which is the resistance color. And uh, on the game, you earn a rank. I am a colonel in the rebellion. <laughs> yeah, you are. Yeah. And the thing is, they do actually, like, they track you, of course, because it's Disney. They're tracking you everywhere you go. And because I know that, when some stormtroopers walk past you in the land, which they do all the time, they're just talking to each other, and they're like, I heard there's a master hacker hanging around here. Better keep an eye out. I had this real feeling of, like, I know where I am. They're going to get me. (laughs) So for a lot of the way that I have coped with... uh, the rise of fascism is by going to this fantasy planet and Ruled fighting the fascists fascism. there. Yeah. Uh-huh. That's fantastic. Yeah. I see the and validation like, there. Are you so sad that you didn't go this year? Yeah, we have missed it a lot. Yeah. So we had this whole plan to go in August, and we were going to take my mother to the Hoopty Doo Review, which is the longest-running dinner theater in America. Hoopty Doo Review. <laughs> yes, indeed. At Fort Wilderness. We were going to go and like have like a huge vacation. It's our ninth anniversary. It was going to be a big deal and we didn't go at all. So I haven't seen my mom for more than a year now. Well, I, I'm glad, you know, as tough as that is, I'm glad you didn't go when they opened and it became yeah. an open cesspool. And we so. keep having to talk ourselves out of it too. Like we keep having to be like, we could just go, we could just go for like two days at Christmas. We could just go for, what about for the inauguration? We could just go like for a day and a half, watch the inauguration on TV and then go to Star Wars land. We could do that. It's the wrong thing to do. The wrong thing, unfortunately. Does Mm -hmm. your colonel rank suffer from you not going this year? I don't. The coolest thing is uh, I also went to Disneyland. And they mm-hmm. have a Star Wars land too. Ooh. My rank holds across the parks. Yeah, it does. <laughs> mm-hmm. That is 
That's smart on their part. I like that. <laughs> ask me if I got a Colonel Insignia magnet to put on my hat on Etsy. We don't have to ask you that. We know the answer to that. Yeah. <laughs> I'm a little disappointed that we're not seeing it right yeah. now. Yeah. <laughs> Of course, or I keep it in like a very it. special protected place. Like mm. that's that's not something okay. you just fuck around with and carry with you everywhere. That's, that's a good true. point. That's yeah. yeah, that's fair. That's it would have been great though if you had showed up in full regalia and just oh you know like yeah, like whoa, we did not expect this. Yeah. <laughs> so that's my. I cannot believe I literally just like told you that my <laughs> Disney World obsession. But that's a wonderful one. I, I like it. watch yeah, YouTubers who go to Disney. I like the way I'm satisfying myself is by watching YouTubers who are going to the parks. Oh, that's a thing. Like YouTubers. It's like a whole thing. There's oh, all these, really? like, these YouTube channels devoted to parks. The world is a weird place. It sure it is. is. Yeah. Like imagine that being your life is that you like video yourself walking around a theme park. No, yeah. but it could be something you aspire to. No. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm so grateful to the people who do it. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Cause I get mm-hmm. that like vicarious satisfaction of like imagining myself. Well, I'm sorry that this year. Yeah. Dull whip. Yeah. yeah. But <laughs> the, I mean, the news about the <laughs> vaccines is astonishing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, the combination of the election and that, and I don't know, there's probably a lot of people who are listening who are like, fuck this bitch with their political blah, blah, blah. But I don't think like we the, get a lot of that side you know, of people listening. No, uh, no. The mm-hmm. combination of the election and the, uh, there's three now, three 90 plus percent effective vaccines. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, I feel a true light at the end of the tunnel, like mm-hmm. getting to April, May, and we're going to be through the hard part. Man, I sure hope so because it, yeah, it's dark it's going to be right super, now. super, super. The winter's mm-hmm. going to be really. As a public health person, like I spent the whole year in epidemiology mode, which I haven't had to use that part of my training for a long time. Wow. But like all this year, I've been in super epidemiology mode. My PhD is in public health, mm-hmm. uh, and uh, when I look at the winter, it's really, really like don't want to scare people, but like super fucking bad. You know how scared you were in March? Mm-hmm. It's yeah. Well, it's as bad as it was then. We're in Iowa with the Republican governor oh, who refuses to do what needs to be done. So mm-hmm. it's been just a cluster for months yeah. and it's hitting a really bad point right now. I mean, it's, yeah. For a long time, it was it was obvious she was vying for some sort of Trump crumb, you know, some mm-hmm. sort of approval. Since oh, the election, yeah, since the election, she's suddenly come out with more rules, but they don't make any sense. So, no. meanwhile, yeah, people are just kind totally of totally arbitrary. Yeah, yeah, people are giving her credit for making a mask mandate that is actually not a mandate. Like, mm. it's basically if you can find a loophole to not wear one, that's fine. Just don't wear one. I mean, it's. <laughs> absurd it's so absurd so yeah i we the fear is there for me for sure because it just good. feels like i mean it's terrible but like good if that should be yeah absolutely mm-hmm. yeah it's scary mm-hmm. my uh, sister got covid uh amelia I who i wrote i with. remember I, I tuned into your podcast and heard her talking about that and she's she's okay now yeah She's uh, the thing is, no, she no. ended up she's one of the 10 percent of young people who gets long covid 
Um, so oh she basically God. has chronic fatigue syndrome now, which other viruses also have like uh. some people get long symptoms, but COVID, a startling proportion of people end up sick for months afterward. Oh like my God. she's drug a stool into the kitchen because she can't stand up long enough to chop carrots for a salad. Oh my, oh my God. <laughs> Oh, God. And I don't say that to scare you, except I totally do say that to be like, look, young, healthy people, you can have like life-changing chronic disability. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Just because you don't die doesn't mean everything's okay. Right. Mm -hmm. Oh, my God. Progressives keep saying facts don't care about your feelings. What they don't realize is that feelings also don't care about your facts. Yeah. Which is actually part of how I write the books, in fact, is recognizing that you do not persuade people through statistics. I'm persuaded by statistics. I fucking love that. Yeah. Uh, but I'm not an ordinary. Like, I am no one's target audience. <laughs> <laughs> so instead of trying to persuade people with science, I do it through storytelling yeah. and finding a starting place of shared values. Like, here's a thing both of us think is important. Let's take like a couple of baby steps out from this thing we both acknowledge is important and see if I can bring you just a little bit further along. That's why writing books is terrible and almost killed me twice. <laughs> so when are you writing another one? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I just spent all this year rewriting Come As You Are. Like, that wasn't as torturous as writing it in the first place, but... That's... Yeah. That's got to be painful, though. You needed a trip to Disneyland after that, or Disney World. Right? And you didn't Come get on. it. And I had one planned, and I did not get it. Maybe next year when you go, they'll just hand out vaccines as you, like, go through the <laughs> thing. <laughs> Hopefully. I don't know. Yeah. I, I can imagine Disney doing that. They have all kinds of connections. I mean, that would get a lot of people. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's not, like, a just way to do it, but... <laughs> No, no, not really. But. And we also don't know how long it takes for them to kick in. I know the first one kicks in uh, only after you get the second shot, which is four weeks after the first one. Oh. Yeah. yeah. So it's not instantaneous. So there's going to be people running around Disney World after their first shot, like, I'm free. Yeah, don't go to Disney World yet. It's don't really it. it's really not okay. Yeah. And I say that as someone who desperately wants to go to Disney World. Oh, my oh. God. Well, on that note... <laughs> <laughs> Disney World and the desire to go. Uh-huh. Thank you so much. This was a ton of fun to get to know you a little bit, to hear about your reading life, to hear about your pop culture obsession, which I would yeah. never have called right? no, in a I lot know. of years. That might be at the top of my favorite answers. Yeah. It might help explain why there are so many Disney princesses in burnout. I need to think about I that. About that. Yeah. There's a lot of Moana. <laughs> oh my God. I have to read that again now, knowing your obsession. Yes. Well, we're going to dig into this. Start with chapter three. Okay. Okay. <laughs> well. Oh, Erin. Mm. She was, I mean, we've said this before, but she was a delight. She was so fun. Mm-hmm. He just came in ready to go. Yes. And so open and hilarious, and I loved every minute of it. It was really cool to discover that she was a huge reader before she became a scientist and still is, which I think you and I can attest to in the books that definitely comes through, her ability to reach, yeah, an audience. Amazing. Yeah, Yeah, you made that comment. It was so true. She can tell stories 
very beautifully and wonderfully, which is obvious now that we know that she was a huge reader, yes. um, which started with Gone with the Wind, which we had a good guffaw about that one because she fully admits it is racist AF. <laughs> but she really liked the, the spunkiness, the, the independence of the main character, which for sure, you can get behind yes, that. Yes, absolutely. The the not really. Right. Actually, not the book at all. You can't. But she was trying to, you know, explain some of her attraction as a mm -hmm. kid. Mm -hmm. And I think we all can relate to that, that maybe we liked a book or it sparked yeah. something in us that now we're like, you know, I don't, like, I'm not going to own that. Yeah, yeah. But she did. She owned it. And I like that. Yes. Mm -hmm. Um. Can we talk a minute about the fact that Jill Biden was her teacher? I mean, I mean what? which means, Erin. I'm sorry, Dr. Jill Biden. That was kind you. of rude. Yeah. yeah. Which means that we are, what, two degrees away from Jill Biden now? Yeah, I think. Yeah. Right? Yeah. So, I mean, I'll be mercenary and we'll use that connection. We'll reach out to Dr. Biden. Definitely. Definitely. <laughs> Especially <laughs> the Dr. Cat. I want to hear about that cat. I want to hear what's yes. going on. Yes. Yeah. Yes. I love that Emily uh, valued reading so much, which we kind of mentioned, but also really said that it's a source of empathy. It's a source of learning about humanity, which I think you and I have said many times, which is why we love books so much. Absolutely. Yeah, that was almost like right on our podcast mission, to be mm -hmm. honest, that we are, you know, growing that empathy does so much for so many things. Yeah. So many problems. Um, I love that her fan interaction was with a sex therapist who yeah. gave come as you are to the the mom. Yeah, which I mean, I am all for it. You know, you want to talk to your mom about sex, get it. And good job on you. Yeah. Yeah. And what a life changing thing it sounded like for yeah, their really. relationship. And I can't think of a like a if you wrote a book like that, a better compliment to know that people are giving it out and spreading mm -hmm. it. And, and as she said, there were many interactions she didn't want to talk about because they were very yeah. personal in nature. And I imagine just from reading the book and seeing some of the, uh, you know, interview sections and, and conversations that she's had with people that people can open up to her in some incredible ways because of what mm -hmm. she writes about, but because of her just general openness. And, yeah, and absolutely. Things. Yeah. Um, I loved so much that she gave us some insight into TED Talks and basically said that the draw is the snacks That's and that she fed her husband for like a year <laughs> on the snacks. That's it's the amazing. inside scoop I needed to hear. Uh, me too. And it yeah. also made me feel seen because <laughs> I would do the same thing. <laughs> I would sure. take all the snacks. Yes. I mean, if they're there, take them. I, that's what they're there for. Um, so the pop culture answer that I'm still reeling from and loving mm -hmm. is the fact that she's this obsessed with Disney World. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. that, that I was not expecting it mm -mm. and, but it was great. And mm -hmm. her joy for it was contagious. Yes. I love that she is moving up the ranks in the Star Wars <laughs> Rebellion and not slowing she down. Is. <laughs> I also like, you know, she mentioned that she and her husband can have a very different vacation at the same place, which I'd never thought about before. That's mm -hmm. really, yeah, that's really mm -hmm. cool. Um, and the big headline here is that there's an updated version of Come As You Are mm -hmm. coming out and it almost killed her. So, you know, it's yeah. got to be great. Yeah. <laughs> 
<laughs> I'm pumped. I felt like I need to make a paper chain immediately for the yes. book because that's yes. so exciting. Yes. So you heard it here first or maybe one of the first places, but here first, <laughs> that's what I'm going with. Heard it. We scooped it. It's breaking <laughs> news. <laughs> Okay, now we're CNN. <laughs> <laughs> well, we will, yes, we will be back next week. In the meantime, you can head to our website, broadsandbooks.com. Check out all of our other author conversations. We have talked to some killer authors, and there's more coming all the time. So subscribe now. You will get all of them direct to you. Happy reading. I'm up again. Same night, another dream. Before trying this recording thing, I didn't remember much of anything of these dreams. I didn't remember much from any of the women. And one night of doing this, and it's broken things open. The dreams are, they're in me, and they're, they're coming out of me, and... To me, I am not broken. I am the most whole, most real. Their despair. I cause their despair. I wait for the word. I wait for the word. Witch. 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 Look at the mad woman in her cage. She was a woman with holes inside her. That was the heaviest factor. The final evidence. The heart of the issue. Somehow, you understand this. You. You. You hear me. Wherever you are, whatever this is, you... This isn't a dream journal anymore. It's not. That's just, it's just fact. <laughs> and because now this is, this is some sort of record. What are these dreams? Maybe there's a better question. Who are these women? Weird Woman is a Broads and Books production. All nine episodes are available January 10th. Listen and subscribe to Weird Woman on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and your favorite podcast platform. That's W-Y-R-D Woman, wherever you listen to podcasts.